Origin Clear is a company that focuses on wastewater treatment. And hello, everyone. Welcome to the Water's New Goal CEO Briefing. Our mission is to transform the water industry. Decentralization offers us this opportunity. The plan that you've built here is super impressive. The world is experiencing a crisis in regards to water. It's a great opportunity that you are giving us investors. The decentralization of water treatment means that we no longer need to establish giant water treatment plants. Let them fight over the 20%. Let's work with the 80% that's untreated. Over 21,000 unique alternative investments. Three million jobs in the U.S. alone. Making it easy for the regular investor. All the old trends just accelerated. Lucrative and fulfilling. The vision I've got is to standardize these products. Design, build, own, and operate. We have six 65 people in the room. We got an important message to to the world. We can put a guy on the moon, but our water is horrible. Recycling all that water, it's a huge impact for the environment. Bringing new infrastructure in, drive growth in America. That's a critical part of the picture. It's a twin 125 gallon per minute RO system. I don't think we're talking about a $10 million fund. We're talking about a series of $10 million. Yeah, the opportunity itself is very big. Yes. Take care of the water. Not too many CEOs do a weekly briefing and are willing to talk to individual investors. And welcome everyone to the, the CEO briefing. Robert Baxter, hello, how are you? He's in New Jersey. And um, it's wonderful. Boy, there's so much going on and we're going to get right to it. And um, I've on a brand new machine, which means all kinds of fun and different and interesting things are happening. <laughs> but you know, if it, it wouldn't be technology if we didn't get to do wild things all the time. Okay, so with that said, today is Thursday, March 31st. Tomorrow is the 1st of April, the day the annual report is due. And I'll be briefing you on that shortly. As always, our vital mission is to help the world invest in water, which is the new stable inflation-friendly asset class. With that said, of course, we have the usual um, safe harbor statement that says we say what we can when we can, and we try and, and get it get it right. And when we don't, we fix it. That's how we do it. All right. So what is up with the 10K? Well, it was due tomorrow. We had our board meeting today, and uh, the whole process was very satisfactory. They're very happy with how the team is working, as opposed to last year when we basically suffered tremendous delays as you might remember if you were around. Um, but we had one small last task. We needed to um, do some warrant calculations. Warrants are uh, basically a right to buy a stock at a future uh, date on a certain price. There were some missing calculations. So rather than just let it go, we decided to handle it. Um, and there's a standard 15-day extension. But we think we'll file in the next uh, few days. And there'll be a press release and review the numbers. So. There'll be a full review next week and um, be there or be square, right? All right. So um, quick excerpt from an excellent podcast that I was on called Build Your Network. As you can see, it's had uh, leaders like John Maxwell, um, Grant Cardone, a number of people, and yours truly was part of it. Ivan says, good evening, everyone. And Keith says the same. And it's uh, 
happy campers. It's a wonderful thing. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. Today's guest is Riggs Eckleberry. He's the CEO and founder of the innovative water technology company, Origin Clear, and disruptor of the trillion-dollar big water industry, which has fallen behind the times and is affecting the health of millions. Simply, our current billion-dollar centralized water systems aren't coping with demand, and water quality is getting worse. Too often, there's simply no money to fix these problems as water is inflating at three times the core inflation rate. The answer is to treat water like an oil well. Riggs' goal is decentralized investment community that could vote on needed projects anywhere in the world and fund them, allowing the investors who have been left out of water for so long to get their hands wet. He's using innovation and his entrepreneurial spirit to help solve the world's water crisis and getting America's investors involved to help solve the problem. Got a lot of great questions for you today, but uh, welcome to the show. Eric, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, really excited to have you on. And uh, we always like to start these conversations uh, way back at the very beginning. So tell me a little bit about where you came from. Take me back to maybe middle school. Uh, what was on your radar? Because I can't imagine solving the world's water crisis was the, uh, the, the dream on the horizon. It's interesting because, of course, I'm a baby boomer. And um, in the post-war era, my dad, uh, if you ever watched Mad Men, he was John Hamm. I mean, he was that mm. guy. Um, and, you know, top of the world, uh, you know, it was really the, the era when if you were an exec with an American company and we, and we were raised abroad. So uh, in various countries, we were by far the most affluent people there. Um, and it, 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 I think, made me and my brothers fairly transatlantic, but also homeless in a way. We I never really grew up in one single place. So it has its pluses and minuses, but we did have, I think, a good appreciation of the world beyond uh, Cleveland, Ohio, which is where my dad was supposed to be with Procter and Gamble. Oh, okay, but ended up, you know, being international. Which uh, the, the issue really is, is that people say, "Well, you know, who were your schoolmates?" Well, I don't have any schoolmates. Hmm. Maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's always hard, right? Because nobody can experience two different lives. So, so the people that grew up traveling the world without a bunch of people around them would say one thing. The people who grew up in a totally different context would say the other, and nobody really knows which side is is the best. Um, but yeah, tell me a little bit about what that exposure to other cultures and other, you know, areas really did for you growing up. Because it travel is one of the best educations I think anyone can get. How did that kind of influence you? Well, I grew up at a time when um, you know Europe was really. It was coming out the common market experience, which was just you know removal of customs is all it was, mm-hmm. was morphing into this vision of the European Union. I mean that was really the whole transition, and there was a lot of optimism. Um, one of the interesting things that I noticed as a kid in Belgium was, wait a minute, where are all these German cars? There were German cars everywhere. The the, the people who were the biggest tourists in post-war Europe were the Germans. They were mm-hmm. the ones. And I was like, this is interesting. The, 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 the German economy re- rebounded enormously post-war, and they were kind of driving, I think, all of Europe, um, mm-hmm. with France and Belgium being a, a lot more um, you know, behind the times. Mm-hmm. So we were keenly aware of it sort of the, it was a, you know, almost a... Um, end of century kind of feeling, right? Fantasiac. Mm-hmm. Um, now, my dad at one point said, Riggs, we're going to have to Americanize you, you know? And he sent me to high school in the States. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, 
That was, I, I landed in, a, in Princeton High School where it was all, you know, 57 Bel Airs being drag raced up and down the street and Fonzie types. I was like, what is this? No. And it was a, it was a, um, it was a real culture shock for me. Um, and what, but, but then again, you know, the world was changing. This was 65, 66, right mm -hmm. when everything was changing from very, you know, uh, Bobby Sox kind of world to this um, the breakup of, of all these societal constraints, right? Mm -hmm. And the new um, era of, you know, question everything. And, and is this really good? Is it not? Mm -hmm. um, and I landed by, by the end of high school, I landed um, in, in New York City, a lot of things happening there. And I ended up working for several years in a, uh, in a nonprofit that formed, I think, a lot of my thinking um, of, you know, got to do something for the world. You can't just work for the mortgage, right? And right. Um, you may or may not be effective at it, but you're, you, that you, you got to try. You right. got to try doing something about the way things are, right? Right. Looking at improving the world that we're in, you know, you know, whatever drives that, uh, you know, there's, there's people who are trying to tackle this. You're tackling something that is not only an, you know, local issue or national issue. It's a global issue. Um, water is something that is our most precious resource really when you get down to it. Um, what got you interested in this mission in particular? Um, and uh, how do you get started <laughs> tackling something like this? Because yeah. it, it's so, I mean, it's so essential that we don't think of it. You know, it's like, it's just, we turn on the faucet, there's water. We go to the store, there's water. We don't tend to think about where it comes from or, you know, what to do with it. It is taken for granted. And, um, and I, in fact, didn't plan on being in water. Um, you know, I, I went, you know, fast, fast forward to when I was in the dot-com era in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I, it was a transformative experience for me. I fell in love with the speed and transformation of the dot-com era. To me, it was, oh my gosh. The day that I realized, because in the 80s, I was in computing for the purpose of uh, general ledger, accounting, order entry, running warehouses and yeah. stuff like that. And then in the 90s, it became computing for communication. How, how different was that? Mm -hmm. And I got super excited about that and, and all the early e-commerce things that were happening and so forth. And so I learned to operate at the speed of disruption. Um, in the early 2000s, I helped take a software company public on the NASDAQ. Uh, and then at that point, I was like, okay, I, I feel I'm ready to be a CEO. And uh, a fund that I was close to said, well, Riggs, yeah, we think you could be a CEO, but it's not going to be tech. We've decided to go into green. Remember green, early 2000s? Uh, we decided to go into green and we think algae is going to be the next biofuel. Hmm. And I went, okay. Sure, sure. <laughs> I knew nothing about it. Right. Fortunately, I have a brother who, who had done some work literally um, in that area and had technology for helping the algae to grow. Okay. We, we, we launched a company into, as a public company with the help of, of this fund that was tackling algae as a biofuel. And we were making great progress until the price of oil crashed um, and it had been artificially maintained at $120 a barrel for a long, long time. Um, artificially maintained in order to encourage renewables like us. But the oil industry figured out that they could vastly increase production through this thing called fracking. 
And um, no. I guess the 50,000 uh, scientists at Exxon had something in mind and they, you know, this guy Mitchell and a bunch of other people invented this technology, which transformed energy um, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden made algae into a science experiment as far as biofuels go. Now, ironically, today, it could be algae's time again because of what's going on, right? But at the time, we're like, you know what? It, we, we can't make algae work at $35 a barrel or even 50. It's not going to work. What do we do? And uh, failure was not an option. So we took this technology that uh, my brother had come up with of pulling the algae out of the water, which is actually a big challenge, dewatering algae, mm -hmm. um, and say, you know what? We can use it to clean water, get the suspended solids out of the water. And that was the genesis. So we literally pivoted into the water industry. And the funny thing is, you know, Eric, I was, I was a, a media darling in the algae. You know, I, um, I, I was, uh, you know, considered a really interesting topic. And I was on yeah. you know, Fox Business and I was interviewed on Bloomberg and debated Jim Rogers. And, uh, yeah. you know, I was called algae man, you know, all these things. All of a sudden I'm in water and I like disappeared. Well, nobody yeah. cared. Because water, as you say, is taken for granted. And so then we started trying to figure out, well, how do we move the needle on water? Because one of the early things I learned is that 80% of all the sewage that's created is never treated at all in the world. Now, this is not true. America, it's the opposite. I mean, we treat most of our sewage. Yeah. But go, go to Bangladesh. Yeah. You know, go to, go to places in Africa, raw sewage into the ocean, the rivers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that is, that's the nature of, of, of water in the world today is that we are polluting this goldfish bowl we live in. And so it's a $1 trillion worldwide industry that by the math of it should be really a, tri a $5 trillion industry, but it's not. Mm. Um, how do you transform it? Well, something very interesting started happening in the 70s, which was a high point of water infrastructure funding is that the federal government started spending less and less on water for reasons we won't get into, but basically they started starving our 150,000 municipal water systems of money. Mm -hmm. And inevitably this resulted in things like Flint, Michigan, and yeah. much, much more. The Flint is only the tip of the iceberg. Um, yeah. And so we have a failure of the central infrastructure that's been growing for decades now. And the, the, the Biden administration came up with um, the multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Well, it had $55 billion for water. And do you realize that we fall behind every year by $75 billion in needed infrastructure? No. So the big, the big infrastructure bill took care of less than one year of backlog. Yeah. Better than nothing. But the truth is, is that we're not going to fix the infrastructure of America. A, because of lack of funding. B, because pop places are all built up. Where are you going to put the water treatment plants? C, it takes time mm -hmm. to build a big central system. And so the natural thing is, uh, you know, I like to say that California is not going to get a bullet train. It's just going to get the self-driving car. Why? Because we have freeways. So mm -hmm. it's going to become decentralized to the most simple thing possible. So early on, uh, by 2015, I was a big, big advocate for decentralization of water treatment. I saw this as a trend. And let me tell you something. I was a prophet in the wilderness. Nobody was listening. Yeah. But yet it has turned into the big trend. 
as as infrastructure falls apart because one of the great things about decentralization is we've seen this in uh, uh, pcs used to be mainframes i'm old enough to have been you know booking time on a mainframe right mm -hmm. whereas we went to pcs took the load away from the mainframes and now the cloud sits there in background and everybody's happy well we need to do the same thing in water because when you start treating the dirty water at the edge then the infrastructure requirements are much easier right all of a sudden your central needs are you're, you're treating water that's been halfway treated already so you're just no. polishing it really it, it changes the whole <laughs> dynamic no right so decentralization is essential um and the next problem occurred and this is one we really had to tackle big time, which is, okay, everybody now wants to treat their own water, but it's not happening. Why? And we arrived at the first week of February, 2020, and saw the inklings of the crash that occurred that week when all prices crashed because Wuhan had been out of business for a month. And we went, oh, what's going on here? And we realized we had to solve this problem right away because we fund the company from the public markets. So right. the public markets started going crazy. We were like, uh-oh. And we went into a very intense period. We're like, what is going on? What is the solution? How do we fix this? And we came up with the realization that it's the money, stupid. Hmm. If you're a brewery and now you, you're, you're expanding your operations and all of a sudden local city says, well, we don't have capacity. We can't take you anymore. You're going to have to build your own water treatment system. Mm -hmm. Well, you're funded to make beer and not to treat water. Right. So it's a capital issue. And so we realized if we fix the capital problem, decentralization is a done deal. And then the second thing we realized is that America's investors would love to invest in water systems mm -hmm. like an oil well. They haven't been able to because it's always been the city and always been bonds, right. municipal, you know, municipal bonds, all that stuff. Now, direct investment. And people are like, sounds good to me. And now this is this thing we call water on demand. Well, that was um, really, really good. Obviously, Eric asked some wonderful questions. And part two is going to be even more interesting. We'll continue that next week, uh, along with a lot of other good coverage. So now another excerpt from the summit uh, two weeks ago that you're going to enjoy. And uh, so let's get this party started. Here we go. I wanted to talk briefly about customer types, all right? Now there's a paradigm, which is in a book called Inside the Tornado. That book envisions basically, imagine a snake who's in the middle of eating a, a big rat, right? So the, the, no, the nose of the snake and it gets really, really big and it gets small again, right? That is the technology life cycle. All right, now at the very mouth of the snake is the beginning of the adoption of the technology and it's with these early adopters. Generally, they do it for reasons that are, you know, not always obvious, you know, like maybe they want to be first on the block to do it or whatever. And, but these, these, are, these are pioneers, all right? And you market to them a certain way. And then it gets a bit bigger and now you get to what's called a strategic buyer. This is a, a, a buyer who's buying into that technology to get a, a, a strategic advantage over their competition. They're investing in this because, and there's many examples out there, but I won't get into them, but so now, the marketing shifts to that strategic buyer because he wants, he or she wants uh, validation, ROI, you know, life cycle computations, all those things are important to the strategic buyer. 
Then, you, before you start going up into that slope, you have what's called the chasm. This is that, you know, Crossing the Chasm is the previous book in that series. But that chasm is where you somehow have to leap from strategic buyers buying occasionally to broad adoption. And the key to doing that, I believe, for us, is going to be that network of operators, right? Because that makes us more than just a single vendor to a single set of people. Across the chasm, now at the bottom of that chasm is something that the author calls the bowling alley. The bowling alley, it was very well illustrated by a company called Documentum that was doing document management before document management existed and they couldn't find an application. And they finally figured out that there was one, which was the FDA drug approval process with 600,000 documents. Boom, they had an application. The drug companies really needed it because keep track of 600,000 documents. Good luck. Right? So they got a foothold in the drug companies for document management. And then, so they, they started spreading, bowling alley, right? And then, of course, they started doing other applications in those same companies. Okay, now we got the FDA drug approval. What about um, archiving uh, double-blind tests or whatever, you know, different applications. So they, they both went from company to company, but also from application to application. This creates enough critical mass that you then go into what's called a tornado, which is that steep slope of adoption, where adoption is occurring without anybody questioning it. I was in the computer industry in the late 80s when Oracle came along. And every new Oracle didn't work. It did not work. If you want to send it to work, you got Informix, uh, you know, or, or you got Ingress, but you never got Oracle. But they did such a good job of getting adopted that, well, Andreas got it, Ken's got it, Josh's got it. Well, I'll, I'm safe because we're all in this together. And, and it becomes at that point a race for seats. You're just grabbing seats. The, the vendor at that point, you're competing with others who by now have started to catch up and you just grab, grab, grab. And that's again what Larry Ellison did so well, he grabbed seats. Regardless of what it worked, just grab, grab, grab. And, and it, it became the dominant uh, database in that case. So uh, that phase is a crazy phase. And then once you get to the top there, you level out and you enter what's called the conservatives. The last half of that high-tech life cycle is the people who finally go, huh, what, huh? You know, <laughs> there's something going on. Um, and only then do you market to them. This is when, for example, the HP laser printer went through this process. And then when it got to the top, it was, you know, a portable one, uh, you know, a, a, a green one, a red one, various just different product iterations <laughs> to just uh, mop up the conservatives. And then you get way to the end and it's like the last adopters, the skeptics, like I'll never do this. And what we are at, I think very much so, is we're at the very mouth of the snake. Right. We're right there with the early adopters with, and we need to seek out people who are not themselves conservative. We don't go, well, I don't know. It's like, no, it's okay. we'll get to you. Right. So that we do triage ourselves as to who we go after. Yeah. And then will us getting to strategic part strategic adopters alone is our home run long before we get into the chasm. Sure. Right. But, um, the, the, the idea here in order to get to the strategic buyer, we've got to have a what the definition of a strategic buyer is, whole product. There must be a whole product, mm -hmm. complete. They won't buy anything less. So that, that's gonna be our goal is, 
is eat off of the early adopters, like like the trailer park, right? I mean, people who are willing to experiment and live through it. And you know what? You need those people to do pilots, right? And then um, get past those people, have a whole product that is now defined. It's got the configurator on the website. It's got the, you know, how do we handle the insurance and the risk and the contract? And what if this happens? All these things have been worked out. And I think that that is our horizon. I can't even look past that horizon right now to what, what could happen later. But what could happen later would be amazing. So uh, that's what excites me. And uh, I recommend the book, by the way. It's a very good read, Inside the Tornado. Thank you. So that was cool. And, uh, you know, what's interesting about the whole um, um, Inside the Tornado concept is each one of these stages, for each one of these stages, you have to be a different company. You have to literally change the character for the company. For example, we start out with these early adopters who are the, you know, the people who buy the latest thing and they're excited about new, new things. And they're, they're willing to be guinea pigs, right? These are uh, really, really necessary. And for them, you want to be very innovative and, and give them special, um, you know, like, you know, front row seats kind of thing. So that's, you know, they, they like status and so forth. Now you then move to the strategic buyer. Now you got to be an organization that produces a complete product. And this is the stage where we're at today with what on demand. We've gotten to the point where actually we're coming out of the, the early adopters because um, you know, we, we've been playing with, for example, this Ponster customer who was very, very helpful. And in fact, we had a big success with them and they got, believe me, more than the money's worth. And we got a good product out of it that's proven. And actually, the backstory on this is that initially, because it's a very gunked up lagoon that they have there in Troy, um, and we just couldn't get it cleared up. It was like, it wasn't happening. And then, um, so Dan doubled the amount of this um, extraordinary ceramic material that he uses. And it went, Poof! it just was mind blowing. And it created a whole new standard for cleanliness. And so, yes, we got... Um, I can tell you now we, we passed the um, Department of, of Environmental Management. Um, the test got passed and it's all good, but it, even more so we have something world-class. So now let's take the Ponster, for example. Now this now moves into strategic buyers. Who are the people who are gonna buy this? And they will buy it as, as I say, a whole product. Does it have the, everything working? Is all of the um, different scenarios worked out and so forth? All these things are built into this. And that really builds the integrity of the product and its reputation. And this is what's happening with water on demand right now. We are in the middle, and I can't get into it, but we're very, very moving very fast with a partner who is going to help us deliver these water as a service projects. Remember that um, currently we only design and build. We're not a, a, a service organization inherently. So we're partnering with an organization that does that. We got the cash. We got this organization and we have some potential contracts that we're negotiating. So it's all kind of coming together. So I would say that Water on Demand is still in the early adopter stage if you, if you want to look at it that way, because it's a pilot, uh, but the pilot implementation will put us into the field with something real. And then Manuel, who you saw at the very left end of that couch is responsible for building the whole processes in the organization. Um, and you know he'll, he'll, you'll get a chance to hear from him some more. And then that will turn into a real organization. Your investments are making it possible for us to build that. 
Okay, so that's what that's about. And um, I personally love that book. And thank you, Keith. Best explanation ever. Very kind of you to say so. But I really am a strong believer in it. Now, there are three books. I mentioned this in my CEO um, update that I sent out the newsletter. There's three books that I that I think are, are amazing. And um, the, the other one that is um, amazing is uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. The Innovator's Dilemma is uh, an amazing book. Clayton Christensen, um, you know, revolutionized how um, tech companies looked at these things. And, um, and I'll get into the third one some other time. So I'm now going to start talking a little bit about, and Ken, why don't you join me? Because I think this is now going to get us into uh, what you just sent me today. Zero Hedge. Welcome. Yeah, that's my, that's my, um, you know, my 5am reading, you know, I opened the thing and I, I, because they usually, they usually nail it right out of the gate first thing in the morning. So let's take a quick look at this article here that you sent me. Um, So we all know that the mortgage rates have jumped astonishingly. And uh, this is getting it really started, you can see, um, right around, just before Labor Day, right around August, mm-hmm. it started taking off. And right. they, they escaped the, um, the previous high, which had been in uh, April, a year ago. And so by December 31st, we were on our way. Okay, now, what does this mean? First of all, it means that um, this is an inflation issue. And before anybody says it's the Russians, this was before Ukraine. So right. Ukraine did not happen until the end of February. So uh, this is clearly something that happened before. Now, um, there is a basically a situation, which I'll show on the next page. This is a scary, scary graph. The yeah. far right, you see um, that light blue trend there is the impact from rising mortgage rates. Because you have two problems. Number one, it's not as affordable, right? And number two, the people who are in homes that are have cheap mortgages are not going to leave, right? I scored a cheap mortgage 2.7, some I think 2.78%, which right. is actually higher than I wanted, but I got in um, right. by by November of 2021. And I'm like, okay, I'm good. And we both and we both financed like within a couple of weeks of each other, right? And it was like 2.78 and, right. and, and, and then, and we were like, ah, oh, and then you hear it goes down, it goes down a tick the next week. You watch uh, 160 basis points. I, I don't know that a lot of people realize, I mean, that's, you know, that's dramatic in, in what a month. Um, and they're planning on as many as what, six or eight additional rates. Oh, it's, it's not even going to happen. Let's not even. I, I hope not. Okay. So this is where this expert talks about, the trajectory of existing home sales. So that is going to, uh, if existing home sales matches affordability, then we're in real trouble. And now also um, the share of buyers that were previous homeowners, as I said, slid to 30 to 35% from 42%. So it's dropping <coughs> fast. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are positive offsets. In other words, um, move higher rates could lead to a pull forward of demand, which I don't get that, but okay, fine. Also shift towards remote work, which means that people are moving from, let's say, uh, you know, New York out to uh, Bergen County, and um, which is lower cost. And okay, fine, I accept that. Um, now, the other thing is that balance sheets are very high. Uh, net worth is, my God, you know, 800% of disposable income. So people are... 
um, what they used to say, land poor, right? Um, in other words, the, 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 uh, the English nobility used to have be land poor. They had these big old castles, but they have no money. And this is what's happening is people are, have very high valued um, properties, but if you can't resell them because, uh, you know, real estate sales are completely dependent upon mortgage rates. And, um, and of course, labor markets booming, et cetera. Demographic tailwinds with millennials now in their prime home buying years. Okay, fair enough. So personally, I think that, that here's, we, we are essentially at a top. We're at a top for real estate. Um, gold, you know, went sky high, but now it's noodling around 2000. It's not really right. taking off. It's like, well, what's going on here? Um, and then we have oil is also kind of like stumbling a little bit. Uh, there's so much uncertainty in the markets right now. And, um, you know, I'm going to be put my, put my uh, neck out and say that I think that Ukraine will resolve. And, uh, and I think the reason is that the, um, the Biden administration is continuing to see its polls crash. They're like, well, that didn't work. So, so I guess we'll just kind of wrap that up. So, you know, I, I think that, that there's going to be a stabilizing of the world situation soon. But if people are trying to move from dollars to assets, the question is, what do they go into? And that is where we have this water on demand, the, the water asset for the first time. And we, I wanted to pull up this spreadsheet. We have two spreadsheets. One is, I've seen, you guys have seen this before, which is Airbnb funding rounds. And um, which I'm going to pull out a bit and then pull back so they, just so you guys can see. Um, right here, 12 years ago, who came in? Y Combinator. They came in with $20,000. And these guys, this is at a time when Airbnb was literally air mattresses. That's why it was okay. called Airbnb, air mattresses. They weren't even at the cereal boxes yet, you mean? And then they had this bright <laughs> idea of somebody convinced them to get a, to, to make a bunch of branded Airbnb branded cereal boxes. And they were touring all of the VCs. And um, this was more in the, um, the phase when um, Ashton Kutcher had come in. I'm going to just, I, I don't want to make things too small for people, but if you look yeah. here, you got Ashton Kutcher coming in. Um, what I'm actually going to do here is I'm going to take some of these here and hide them so that they'll come together a bit more. But so these guys here, you know, got an annual yield of 14,000% per year for 11 years. That was the Series A. So you have this the, the very small seed round of $20,000, which is Y Combinator. Then you have... Y Ventures, which obviously is part of the Y Combinator thing and Sequoia Capital coming in. And these guys, it's not shown what they did, but they did very well. The one that we focused on here is where Ashton Kutcher came in because, you know, basically $7 million was raised for 10% of the company. $70 million valuation. That was dramatically good, 157,000% multiple. So, you know, that's where you want to come in early. Let's take a look at a current hot IPO, which is the Stripe IPO. And uh, again, I'm going to take get rid of these uh, columns. And this one here um, is they've been selling stock in this thing for, at 152 billion in the secondary markets. It has not gone public yet. Um, and again, Y Combinator came in with 24,000. I mean, think about it. Right. 
These guys come in with tiny amounts of money and just a oh Lord have mercy. And user, I mean, usurious, absolutely no, usurious multiples. No, it's capital. It's, 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 it's capitalism, my friend. But look, I, I get it. in, th- I in get this it. case, we had Peter Thiel come in or Thiel. Uh, and this was, this, this seed was very, very strong, $2 million. But here again is the series A. Sequoia took all of this. Notice how Sequoia is in both of these. And then we get into a lot of others uh, down the road. Now the multiple, but, go ahead. But, but, te- but teal, the teal round was, mm-hmm. the, was, the, was the first VC round that wasn't some immediate like, like jumpstart incubator. It was kind mm-hmm. of real money, right? It was, right. Uh-huh. $2, you know, million, it was $2 million, yeah. right? For 10%, um, exactly. Very 10%. similar to the $7 million for 10% of Airbnb. Right. And uh, I believe that the teal round will be $750 million, 759, I'm sorry, uh, $15 billion, isn't it? Right. So it's 760,000%. And oh, right. let's, let's take a look here. Um, a second. Well, you have the column, you just hit it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm trying to bring right. it up again. Uh, unhide, oh, here it is. Right? Yeah. I know. I'm trying to bring it up. Um, there it is. So yeah, 15, you know, just 15 billion, no biggie. $15 billion. But From essentially two million. what that is, right. Essentially what that is, is um, it, here's what I, here's what I say. Look, Peter Thiel probably is a third partner in this thing. And, and look, truth be told, Peter Thiel was a billionaire before he did this. Yeah. So making $5 billion on this, I mean, it's absolutely wonderful. I'm sure he's happy, but it actually didn't change his life, right? This is mm-hmm. what he does at this point. But look at it like this. If, if, if guys like you and I, or guys like, you know, the investors out there that we talk to, if they, if they would, there's, there's a reason they didn't let us in, right? But if they took, if they said, look, I have a million dollars, I have a hundred, I have a hundred thousand dollars, take my hundred thousand dollars, please, right? Um, it would be $750 million right now. So whereas it doesn't change Teal's life, $100,000 turned into $750 million is life-altering. Doesn't matter who you are, okay? Um, the problem is, the reason they go for these kind of big money is $2 million is a rounding error to Peter Teal. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is at a time when FinTech was really an idea. I mean, none of the processes that are in place today, the technology processes, were in place back then for Airbnb or for things. So it really was kind of a jumpstart thing, right? Yep. Um, so they could have lost it all. But, you know, the idea is that getting involved in the, in the VC round, if you actually can get access, is the one where you could confidently do 10 of them. And one has to work and it, it just changes your life. So let's 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 really recognize, and this is a realization we're having in our like at the Water on Demand Summit, that Origin Clear really is an incubator, right? It is it is Y Combinator, and it puts in it, what it's been doing now, and it puts in context the my my many efforts to make something go because in in an incubator you're not going to get 100% wins as part of the deal, right? So. Um, if we think of Origin Clear as an incubator, then what it is launching as a world brand and sending out to the to the world is this water on demand thing. I can't say more than that, but 
we then would want to do the same thing for the crypto and the same thing for modular water systems and even for progressive water, which it turns out has patentability for some of their technologies, right? So we could turn into a, an assembly line and people owning Origin Clear stock would get the benefit of all of these rollouts. Now, of, of course, after a while, let's say, let's say a company is rolled out, it's spun off, um, then Origin Clear remains with X percent. It's not 100%, but you know, let's say it's 30%, but it's 30%, let's say, and it's totally theoretical. I don't even say there's a spinoff, but um, in that scenario, you've got a whole bunch of these, each of which right. you have, let's say a third of it. It's like when Yahoo was saved by its third ownership of Alibaba. I'm like, Alibaba, thank you very right. much. It's right. hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Right, right, and it right. saved Yahoo. So I think that's the thing to look at. And this is where it's going to go from now on is, is this concept of um, thinking of Origin Clear as an incubator and doing what we call pure plays. Mod uh, water on demand is a pure play. And I think that that's the way to look at it. And it's also makes it vastly easier to attract legitimate institutional money because it's not complicated. Uh, an incubator is very hard for uh, institutions to look at. Why? Because it's like, a, it's like a shop. It's got a bunch of stuff on the walls and there's some projects over in the corner. Right, uh, something's pulled know. apart in the corner. No one knows what exactly. it is, right? right? Yeah. And, and it's like very messy but it's, it's giving birth to things. And those things it gives birth to, those Are can be institutional grade, right? right and right. what's even more exciting is, as we're rolling out water demand, it is what I would call a secular opportunity, meaning that it is secular in this, in this context means literally once in a century. Why? Because how often does a major asset come into being? I, probably the last one that, that came into being was Bitcoin. That was 30 years ago, right? So nice. um, now and that's we're, worked out okay so far. Bitcoin, not too bad, not too shabby. Not bad. So yeah. look, no. and here's a good point though, Riggs, right? Buying Bitcoin at 65,000 people go, blah. We're talking about, what about the people who owned Bitcoin at the inception? Do, you, do they care that it's 40,000 or six? No. Um, Airbnb, the IPO investors own it at like $141 a share. I think that's where it went public, if I'm not mistaken. So it's like 137 right now. So they haven't mm -hmm. made any money. Do you right. think Ashton Kutcher gives a damn who's no. buying it today at 130? You know what I mean? So those rounds, they forgive all, all sins, those rounds. So, and, and here's the other thing. Bitcoin had no, nobody believed in it. I mean, one, I think one guy bought a pizza for what is now worth $160 million worth of Bitcoin. And because oh uh, it was 40 Bitcoin, I think it was. Yeah, 40 Bitcoin for one pizza. And uh, it was at the very beginning. And it was nothing, right? Well, that is where these things start. And if you relate it back to this technology life cycle, you have an idea what this could be. So um, once again, we're getting you know, a little bit on the late side. Um, I don't like to go much past uh, quarter till the hour, um, but Ken has a lot more to talk about with respect to this, a lot more. And I'm gonna leave it to your imagination. No pressure. <laughs> Uh, Chris Worth says, I can think of 30 to 50 systems in New Mexico. Excellent. Um, go ahead and send a note to me, Chris, at, at CEO at originclear.com, and I'll get, I'll get the team rolling on that. Um, but for, to talk to Ken, just book oc.gold slash Ken. And next week, we will have that, finally, that money show presentation. Also, you're going to get 
the, the annual report results, and it's going to be packed full of information. So don't miss next week. And uh, let's see. Yes, I think it's time to it's time to say goodbye. goodbye. No singing, though. No. Goodbye. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I did. I did. I did want to. Um, I did want to mention that I've had several conversations today where I've really provided a lot more color on this, and I, I don't want to share too much. Right. But I shared with you the level of enthusiasm. I mean, it's, you know, it's through the roof, right? Uh, we had three or four significant new investments in water on demand today just by having a conversation. You know, they, they're, they're really getting it. So I'm excited. I'm really excited about what the, the direction we're going. Well, it is going to be a single thing, single brand, what we call a pure play. And I will let your imagination take you where it will go. And uh, Ken will be happy to imagine with you. Let's put it that way. Or validate. Good. Anyway, so thank you all. Thank you, Ken. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Andrea, as, nice as I noted, you. is in Italy. And, um, you know, he's, um, and David Dickerson sent us his name, which is wonderful. But right. uh, with that, we need a message from David. But um, Let's give if you him a want. second to send it. Hang on. <laughs> but no, um, Andrea is, is seeing family in Italy and working night and day, of course, because of the time zone. He's doing a fine job. He hasn't stopped working. All right, everyone. Have a great weekend. And we'll definitely Good see night, you folks. again very soon. Cheers. Cheers.